Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now, on today's show, our focus is going to be on an industry which can be referred to as the classification and certification industry. So if you take a look at the physical objects around you, a lot of them need to meet certain requirements before they can be considered as ready for use by people. So as an example, let's take a house. A house during its construction has to meet certain requirements before it can be considered as ready for someone to live in. Similarly, if you take a car, again, it has to meet certain standards before it can be considered as safe for someone to drive. Now, there are organizations that define the requirements that have to be met by various objects, and then they certify whether those objects meet those requirements or not. And that's the space that we'll be talking about today. Our guest on today's show is Vinod Khare, and he works as a research engineer with a company called DNVGL. DNVGL is one of the largest classification companies in the world, and they focus on certain specific areas, such as maritime objects, so that would involve working with ships and various offshore structures, oil and gas, so that would involve working with oil pipelines. Another area of focus is energy, so that would involve working with objects like wind turbines and solar panels. Vinod himself works as a research engineer. He has a background in civil engineering. He graduated from IIT Kanpur in 2007, after which he also did a master's in geodetic engineering from Ohio State University. Now, I'm going to let Vinod explain what geodetic engineering means. But um, after that, he has accumulated more than four years of experience in this space. And on today's show, he'll be sharing a lot of details, both to help us understand this industry, as well as the specifics of his job. So with that, let's see what Vinod has to share with us today. Hey, Vinod, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Hi, Sutanali. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Um, I understand it's pretty late for you. You're on the Eastern time zone, right? Right. It's not that late. I mean, I usually don't go to sleep before midnight and it's only 10 p.m. So it's okay. <laughs> okay. So we have some time then to record the call. Right. Okay. So I was curious to know, since you work in a fairly unique and interesting space, mm-hmm. do you get the chance to visit or see locations or things that one wouldn't get to ordinarily? Mm, uh, well, typically my job is, is in front of the computer like like most of us today, but occasionally I do get to visit some exciting places. Like recently we visited a coal-fired power plant in the Midwest mm-hmm. uh, to install a prototype sensor network. So that was, I think, pretty cool. I had never imagined what a power plant would actually look like. Oh, wow. Okay, so... Well, first of all, what is a prototype sensor network? Well, uh, uh, the idea is that in the in the Midwest, you you have you're still generating a lot of electricity by burning coal, and a lot of this technology is pretty old. So the power plant that we visited 
was uh, uh, built sometime in the 60s and now it's it's an aging structure so what they need is uh, they need some way to monitor the the structure and look at it, look at its integrity and see if it's safely operating whether it's going to fail whether uh, everything is going okay so they now want dnv to come up with some sort of technology to do this so what we proposed is that we are going to install a network of sensors on some uh, pilot power plants and that's that's what i was there to do so these were prototypes because these are not sensor networks you can just buy off the shelf in the market and go and install them so we are kind of setting it up ourselves and learning in the process how to do it and our company is also learning how to do it oh i see okay so basically you were installing certain sensors in various parts of the structure to right. measure whether the structure was still good to use or not right exactly okay so what happens in the power plants is that uh, if you know how a power plant works you you burn coal you heat water and then you use the steam to run the turbine so pretty standard technology but as you're heating the water making steam the pipes are heating and cooling so they are expanding and contracting because of the heat Mm-hmm. So this causes a lot of fatigue in these pipes they need some way to measure this fatigue and stress oh i see okay. okay so i mean what would be the average lifespan of of uh, these pipes well the power plant as a whole is designed for about 40 years of operation and as i mentioned these power plants were installed in the 60s so they have already exceeded their design lifetime individual pipes themselves might be replaced occasionally and uh, so you know typically they last about 10 to 15 years uh, depending on how much uh, stress the pipe is going through, going through but these are also the biggest points of failure because they are the ones that are having the most stress they need to be monitored regularly that makes sense so were you the one who designed these sensors yes i was so I tested a lot of different sensors and then I designed how those sensors will actually transmit data back to the internet. So now of course we live in the 21st century so we want these sensors to be connected to the network either to the Wi-Fi or to a cellular network and then transmit all that data into a cloud where our clients can look at at a dashboard and you know see red and green lights and telling them which parts of their plant are okay and which ones are not. I see okay oh that's pretty interesting so you were seeing information in real time what is working what is not yes yes okay that's very interesting okay so i i think that is already a useful introduction to what you do but we'll get into more detail so maybe you can give us a little bit of a more detailed background on yourself and how you got here right so i i feel like i've had some sort uh, something of a meandering sort of a life uh, i went to iit kanpur i started doing civil engineering didn't really like it too much so towards the end of my stay at iit kanpur i got interested in remote sensing and gis because i had a more software oriented aptitude so what is gis uh, so gis is geographical information system so now they are everywhere google maps you know google maps your gps navigation that's all gis that's what i did towards the end of my btech then i worked with remote sensing for a while in india then i came to the us to the ohio state university where i got my masters in uh, geodetic science so that's kind of an old word for gis 
So that's just what they used to call Google Maps before it was Google Maps. Or rather, before Google picked up that technology and made it big. Uh, additionally, I actually did most of my master's work in computer vision. So that was a complete departure from my civil engineering degree. And after that, I got hired by DNVGL, which used to be DNV at the time. And even though they hired me for my GIS expertise, what I ended up doing is a lot of machine learning and software development. Now, in the past year or so, I've been working on sensor networks and Internet of Things. So I've been all over the board. Okay. All right. So I, I have a lot of questions. When all... Okay. First, just to clarify some of the terms that you used. Okay. Uh, and this is for the benefit, both for me as well as for some listeners who might not be aware of these Absolutely. terms. So when you say remote sensing, what does that mean? Remote sensing is any kind of sensing through satellites. So that's typically what the word is used for. So we send satellites up in the space. They have cameras on them. They just don't have optical cameras. They just, I mean, they just don't see have cameras that we have on our cell phones. They also have cameras that can take pictures in X-ray, in infrared. You know, they also have radars that can send signals on the earth, bounce them back, and then take a picture using that. So it's, 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 they have fairly sophisticated equipment on board. So there's a whole field of engineering dealing with that. So that's remote sensing. Okay. And then what is computer vision? To give a popular example, uh, these days when you upload a picture on Facebook, Facebook can actually recognize your face and suggest names to tap, right? So it can recognize which one of your friends is there in the picture. That's something that computer vision does. So computer vision can recognize objects in pictures you show the computer a picture of a chair and the computer will be able to tell you that's a chair. In more sophisticated cases, the computer might actually be able to make measurements. So any kind of information that you extract from cameras comes under the purview of computer vision. I see, I see, okay. And then you said that geodetic is just another old school word for GIS. Right. Which was? Geographical information systems. Okay, which is basically a mapping system right so this is the art and science of making maps they used to make maps with pen and paper as everybody knows and then we invented computers so now everybody does it with computers it's a subset of computer science almost because we we use most of the techniques uh, developed by computer scientists you know finding routes so on google maps you can go you can enter your start point end point and it tells you how you can get there and in what time so that's a very standard problem in computer science, which GIS then uses, geographical systems use to give oh, you see. some useful information on the map. I see, I see. Yeah, because I guess that is the fundamental piece of information that you need from the map, which is I have point right. A, I have point B. How do I get from point A to point B? Right, exactly. Okay. And with modern technology, a um, lot of what we learn with GIS has to do with automation. This will show you why all of my different threads are linked. So, for example, you could take a picture with a satellite and you could run it through an algorithm so that you get a map that you can then show somebody so that they can then search the optimal route to get somewhere. And then what we're concerned with is to be able to do that completely automatically without human intervention. I see. Okay. So throughout your undergrad and then when you were doing your MS, through these years, you 
developed an interest and learned about all of these different different areas and all of mm-hmm. that is now helping you in your role today at GNV. Right. Okay. So actually before we get into what you do at GNV, I mm-hmm. think it will be or sorry DNV, I got the name of the mm-hmm. company wrong. Can you give us an overview of mm-hmm. the industry overall? Mm-hmm. What exactly does this industry do and then we can get into the specifics of your job. Right. So I think uh, during your introduction, you covered pretty much all of it. Uh, DNV does essentially two kinds of things. One is certification, and that is what you talked about in your introduction, is that if there is any object, we work in the oil and gas industry, we work in maritime, so let's say there's a ship, let's say there's a refinery, oil refinery. People want to know, typically governments want to know that they are safe to operate, that it's not going to explode and kill people. So they create regulations to make sure that, that that everything is in order. And then DNB as a third party, independent third party, it will come in and certify that yes, that refinery or that ship is safe to operate. So that gives peace of mind both to the owner of the ship or the owner of the refinery, the business that owns it, and to the government that it's safe to operate. So DNB acts as a third party certifier of things. And then what DNV also does is advisory services. DNV also will come in and tell you how to set up an asset, set up a refinery, set up, uh, let's say, an oil and gas field uh, in a way that it's safe to operate. So, for example, recently in, in the United States, there's a lot of shale gas activity. So we have found this new source of natural gas. And now businesses, oil and gas companies in the United States want to export it. They have to build new facilities that can collect all this gas and then put it on in tankers and then export it to other countries. So then DNV would typically come in at some stage of that project and then verify that everything is safe. So in this case, we are not acting as third parties, but we are actually just acting as as an advisor to the, the company that's trying to set this up to make sure that everything is safe to operate. That makes sense. Do most companies in this space play both roles uh yes typically yes okay so they will have both an advisory arm as well as setting up the certifications arm. right okay and uh, in some cases it creates a conflict of interest so we are very careful that we do not certify our own work so if we act as advisors then we don't certify or if we certify we don't act as advisors that makes sense okay so uh going back to what you mentioned which is um you would certify objects like ships or oil refineries. Let's maybe walk through the kind of things that you would certify for a ship. Maybe you can take an example of a certain kind of ship and just give us a few pointers just to get a sense for uh, what does that really mean. Right, right. So it really depends on the industry that you're talking about. Right. So there is no one one way to do it. That's very important to remember. It, it really depends on the industry. It also depends on which geographical area you're talking about. The maritime business, the shipping business is more uniform because there are international laws that govern shipping and there's less variation geographically. But the oil and gas business is very varied, especially what we call the the downstream oil and gas business. That means the pipeline going through your backyard. Those are really governed by governmental entities, regulators, so then there is a lot of difference in how these things are done. Anyway, so let's take an example of a ship. So typically, when a new ship is commissioned, there are different parties that need to know if the ship is safe to sail, right? So even before 
it leaves the harbor, uh, DNV would typically send two or three surveyors on board the ship, and they would look at different things. They would they they typically have these huge checklists that they want to verify. So they would look at the engine room. They might look at all the safety procedures. They might look at the control room whether you know everything is working or not. They might look at the navigation equipment. So they have this huge checklist for every component of the ship, and they will go through the checklist and verify that everything is in order and that the ship is has been made in the right way. So, for example, you know, if they observe any kind of faults, if they observe any kind of cracks, if they observe any kind of corrosion happening on the ship, that raises a red flag. If they observe any kind of safety equipment that's missing, let's say, you know, a small thing, like let's say there's no fire extinguisher in the engine room, that's, that's a big red flag, right? Mm-hmm. So they would go through this huge checklist and then they would make sure that uh, everything is in order. So they, in, in the shipping industry, this is called classifying. So what they what the issue is, like giving a grade to a ship, so grade A, grade B, grade C. Okay. So they will give a grade to the ship and this grade is then used by the regulators to know that, okay, the ship is okay to sail and it's not going to cause an accident. And it's also used by insurance people. I see. So it's used by insurance companies sense. to decide what insurance premium they're going to charge the shipping company. Ah, I see. So okay, there's also sense. some business sense to doing this activity. Okay. So what are the different grades that exist? Uh, I don't know. I have never worked in the maritime business, so I cannot give you the specifics. Okay. But I'm imagining that there's a similar grading policy across different things that you're looking at like refineries or wind turbines no that's that's the thing so it varies across industries so uh, in the shipping industry they have uh, class so they do it when the ship is commissioned and then they do it every i think they do it every five years if i remember correctly but every five years the ship has to be recertified uh, in the oil and gas industry it really depends more on the geographical region that you're talking about okay so for example in the u.s if you are talking about transmission pipelines, so there is there are pipelines on the U.S. soil that are transmitting oil products, right? So crude oil, refined oil, and so on. There's an, a regulatory body called PHMSA, P-H-M-S-A. I think it stands for Pipelines and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. Mm-hmm. And they decide what needs to be done. So they have guidelines. Okay, this pipeline needs to be surveyed every five years or every three years. Uh, depending on what kind of pipeline it is. So then somebody has to go out there and look at the pipeline every so many years. And they don't give them, they don't give grades. It essentially, there is a, uh, there's a report that is generated that if, if any section of the pipeline is critical, that will be highlighted. If not, pipeline is safe to operate, then somebody will sign off on it. And that's it. Got it. Okay. Uh, All right. So people who are working as the ones who are actually inspecting all of these different objects and figuring figuring out whether they meet those requirements or not. They mm-hmm. are, as as you said, they are called surveyors. And usually right. what is their background like? Typically, these will be um, engineers. So these will be mechanical engineers, chemical engineers, industrial engineers. So these will be people who, who do very hardware-oriented engineering, mm-hmm. right? And uh, surveying does not require a lot of academic background. So typically, these will be people with bachelor degrees 
uh, they come into an industry as very young people and then they learn on the job so they would learn I the see. specifics of doing particular business got it okay all right so you said that you got into this space right after your masters right right okay so what attracted you to this space in the first place I ended up in this company mostly by serendipity but then I decided to stay because I thought the work was very challenging especially because what we do uh, in research is that we are trying to bring all this modern technology that has been created in the silicon valley uh, into the oil and gas industry the oil and gas industry is very conservative it has not embraced new technology at all so it's a very challenging role, job to kind of bring all of that in and show them the benefit and within the industry i often feel at the forefront of being able to do this so i that was very exciting that's why i decided to stay in this job i see okay so your focus is also some uh, you know it sounds corny but uh, ultimately what we are working for the end goal is to make different industrial assets safe you know it's to make your pipeline safe it's to make your refinery safe and that gives me some satisfaction because accidents don't happen and people don't get hurt so there's that aspect to it no for sure i mean this is critical work that has right. to be done so i think based on what you're describing your focus within the company is on oil and gas specifically true okay true. so then i think this is a good segue into describing what does a research engineer in this space do right so in uh, in my company uh, research engineer typically does the more practical aspects of within a research team where others are doing more theoretical things so in my research team we employ phd's in chemical engineering uh, in particular corrosion engineering uh, we have electrical engineers we have mechanical engineers and these scientists would be doing more theoretical work and what i do is i help them do the more practical aspects of it so for example let's say a chemical engineer he comes up with a new model to uh, model corrosion in pipelines so corrosion is when you have it's, it's essentially rusting right so you have your pipeline there is water and then over time it rusts and then it fails so we want to be able to prevent that from happening so a chemical engineer would come up with a new model to predict at what rate the pipeline is corroding and then what i would do is i would take that model and then convert it into software i would apply machine learning techniques to train that model i would build a software prototype around it i would run automation scripts to run these on big projects you might take a model and run it on a network of 10000 pipelines so i have to write automation scripts to that to do that sometimes i use my gis background so for example the amount of moisture in the soil it affects at what rate these pipelines will corrode so then i gather a lot of gis information and then all that feeds into the model so that's so i kind of do a practical aspects of building new technologies i think that's in a nutshell what a research engineer would do in other fields i do mostly software things but in general a research engineer need not be a software person you know they could be doing more hardware oriented stuff so we've had uh, over time in our team uh, other engineers who would be building equipment in the lab they would be setting up experiments and then they would be analyzing you know different kinds of flow models corrosion models in, in, in the lab so that is also part of being a research engineer that makes sense okay 
So to help me understand this, basically what you're saying is first there will be someone who is an expert in an area. So you give the example of corrosion and he or she will come up with a model to describe Mm -hmm. how does corrosion affect a pipe. Right. Now, once he has that model in place, which I'm guessing is in the form of a software, how does that model manifest itself? It can be a software. Depends on the complexity of the model. So typically these days, everything is in the form of software. But it would not be a software that you could install and start using. It would be an, a script that somebody wrote because these are these are researchers. They're not software engineers. Mm-hmm. So they would you know typically write a script in MATLAB or Python that uh, describes the model. Sometimes it can be just equations that they have come up with. So they do some lab testing and then Using the data, they would come up I with see. an equation to uh, describe the behavior of different elements. Right, right. Okay, so it will be something like, um, and I'm just using hypothetical terms, but mm-hmm. it could be something like that within 10 years, uh, due to corrosion, the pipe will become weaker by X percent or something like right, that. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So then when you have an equation like that, you convert it into software and apply it on a larger network. What does that mean? Okay, so I don't know if you really want to get into the details of my particular project. Uh, uh, but we, we can, and then uh, we can edit it out if it's too technical. Okay. Yeah. All right. The project that I'm working on in particular, uh, we are trying to apply machine learning techniques to modeling of corrosion and corrosion risk on pipelines. So what that means is that over time, companies, oil and gas companies and DNB, we have gathered a lot of data about how pipelines behave, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that, okay, under these conditions, the pipeline corrodes at this rate. If there's a lot of water, it might corrode in five years. If, if, if you put it in a dry area, it, you know, it might not corrode in 50 years. We have a lot of data that we have gathered. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is use machine learning techniques to uh, extract these models from the data. So to do that, what we use is, uh, it's a technique called Bayesian Networks. It's a particular machine learning technique. And we build models using Bayesian Networks. No, that uh, makes sense. So basically, okay. you're you're extrapolating what you've gathered from specific number of data points and applying it right. to larger networks. Right. And then we, what we want to do is make predictions. Is that based on all this history, Suppose we have a pipeline that is installed today. How will it behave five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Right. So that's that's a prediction that we make. And then we want to be confident that that prediction is good. The way we do it is we take some data from the past, let's say from the year 2000. Mm-hmm. We run our model on it and make a prediction for 2015. And that we can verify because we are living in 2015. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, that's very so cool. Once that verification is done, then we know that our model is sound. Yes, that right? makes sense. So that is what I do. So what, what, what I do is I, you know, we typically get data from our clients. These are oil and gas companies. They would give us some data. They will say, okay, uh, let's try your model on this particular set of pipelines, this network of pipelines. Then I take all of that data. I feed it into the models. Then we might require some additional data, like I said, some data coming from GIS databases. There might be some uh, machine learning techniques involved that mm-hmm. you have to uh, retrain your model for every 
domain that you work in so if you're working in the us you have to retrain your model if you work in the middle east you have to retrain your model because the middle east is a big desert so it's a different kind of model right right so i'm guessing there so, are a lot of inputs that are going into your model right exactly yeah, yeah. so that is my job is to kind of coordinate all of this activity got it got it okay and it sounds very complicated <laughs> Um, yeah, there's a lot of components to it. So day to day, it's really not that complicated to comprehend, but there's a lot of things to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. So it's complicated in that sense. There's a lot of components. Yeah. So one of the things that you had mentioned earlier in the podcast was that oil and gas industry generally is not as technically advanced, especially when you compare it with some of some of what's happening in Silicon Valley. And one thing that you're working on is bringing in a lot of the technologies that you see here into this industry. Right. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that? What kind of technologies look very promising to you? Right. Right. So one technology that is very, very promising is what Silicon Valley is now calling the Internet of Things. Uh, so the essentially, essentially idea is that now connected to the Internet has become very cheap and very uh, even small devices can connect to the internet so you know your watch is connected to the internet so that is a very promising technology because of the reasons i was talking about earlier is that now you know we, we always talk about this you know science fiction scenario where instead of sending surveyors onto a ship what you do is you outfit the ship with sensors so you have sensors on the ship measuring everything they're measuring starting from the temperature, the vibrations, the rate at which your components might be corroding, sensors to measure how your engine is operating, how much fuel it is consuming. There are sensors for everything. And if you outfit your ship with a sense, with all these sensors, the computer can do the work that surveyors today do. So surveyors bring this big checklist and they decide whether the ship is safe to sail. The computer could do that if it has all the information, right? That is something that is really exciting the industry, primarily because it now means that instead of doing your doing your check every five years or every three years, you can have a continuous check on your equipment, right? Because these right. sensors are going to operate day and night. Right. No, that sounds very, very, very promising if it can actually be made to work. Right. So is that something that you're working on? Yes. So the project that I was talking about earlier with the power plants, so... That is kind of what it is. So we are deploying all these sensors there and then we get all this data and then we also build the models. So I was also talking about building the models that make sense of all this data. Mm-hmm. Okay. We get this data, the model does its thing, and then it tells you whether an accident or a failure is about to happen. Got it, got it. All right, so I think we have a pretty good idea of, at a high level, what the industry is and what your job entails maybe Mm -hmm. we can now go into a little bit of what you do on a day-to-day basis okay so what kind of problems do you solve more on a day-to-day basis on a day-to-day basis or perhaps you could talk about what a typical day looks like what kind of activities do you usually engage in on a typical day i'm doing one of three things i am either brainstorming so there's a new problem that we're trying to solve and then research is unlike whatever misconceptions people might have, it's mostly trial and error. You 
So you think up a bunch of ideas and then you try them out to see if any of them work. So that's that's one of the things I might be doing. Uh, I might be trying out different ideas. I might be building small demo applications or prototypes to test these ideas out. So I talked about sensors. So I might have four or five different sensors on my table and then I'm trying them out. I'm seeing how they function, how they, what do they measure, is, you know, if, if, if it's useful at all. Then comes the task of actually building the technology. So in tandem with my team, once we have zeroed down on an idea which seems promising and we feel that it's useful, then we actually build something around it. So we might build a small app or a small tool or a small sensor network that actually works. Got it. Right? That's the, that's the really ha- you know hands-on part of the job. And then on other days, I'm trying to sell what we do. So sell in the sense of trying to convince people that all these new ideas and new technologies we're coming up, coming up with are actually useful and they should adopt them. So education and training is also a big part of what we do in research. Right. Is that usually internal to the company or are you talking to someone outside? Uh, it is both because typically what we do is that we are trying to build all this new technology and both us and our clients don't understand. So us meaning other business units within the company, they for them it's completely new. They don't understand the benefits. They don't understand why they should adopt this new technology and our clients are also in the similar position. So it's both internal and external. Got it. Okay. And I guess that's not a very simple thing to pull off. What tactics do you use to try and convey the value of what you're doing, especially because it is a fairly technical thing that you're trying to convince people is of value, which they might not always understand. Right. So tactics wise, you, you have to get down to the basics. So first thing you have to know your audience. So if you're talking to engineers, then you talk on the merits of the technology because they are able to understand it better. Uh, if you're talking to more management level people, uh, they are more concerned with balance sheets and different kind of liability issues and so on. But then you talk in those terms that, hey, this technology can save you so much money or it can improve the safety of your equipment so that you don't get into you know different kind of liability issues. Then you talk that kind of language. So you have to really tailor your message to who you're speaking to, right? So... Strategy-wise, that is that's kind of how we go. A lot of times, people are very resistant to new technology, so it it does take you know some perseverance before you can convince people. Right, right, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, if if you were to try and assess the amount of time that you spend on each of these three activities, assuming that these three make up hundred percent of your time, how would you split it? Mm, I would say 20% brainstorming, 60% is building stuff, and then 20% is selling stuff. That's not so bad. That's not so bad. I mean, I I actually, uh, very honestly, I enjoy all three aspects Mm -hmm. because all of them have different pleasures. I mean, brainstorming, you get to try out all sorts of new stuff, and then I really like building things, so that's fun. And then I'm not good at selling stuff. And that's uh, that was something completely new when I came into this job. But right. what I've realized is that when you do that, when you try to explain your technology to others, it helps you kind of understand it better yourself. Right. And, right. Uh, and 
when you do that then you you become really good at it so that's the aspect that i like about it okay okay so you mentioned that usually you have four or five new sensors on your table that you're looking to test out and see if they can actually add any value or not so if i go to your table right now what sensors will i find oh right now none of them because i'm not working on that project but i know your question so what uh, you know for example i am we might have something called an imu okay an imu is it's actually in your phone so when you're playing one of those games where you tilt your phone and then the car goes forward so many of our audiences have seen that game that measurement of how much the phone is tilting is made by something called an imu that's the full form is inertial measurement unit and so the smartphones are amazing because now they have put all these sensors in your pocket so i can explain everything uh, yeah. so that's that's an imu and then we have something called a laser ranger so it essentially sends out a laser pulse and then it measures uh, the distance of the object in front of it okay so a lot of cars these days have collision sensors for example so if they are you're closing on to another vehicle it will give you an alarm so that's the kind of sensor that i'm talking about mm-hmm. uh, then i work with cameras i've talked about my experience with computer vision so you can actually use cameras to measure movement right so you can put cameras in front of a pipeline and measure if the pipeline is moving you could actually do that okay so just to go into a little bit more detail if you take the imu how mm-hmm. would you apply it in the oil and gas industry right so we worked on two different projects so one was with the power plants so in the power plant what they wanted to know was the movement of these pipes so if you stick an imu on a pipeline or on a pipe rather uh, when the pipe moves you can measure it right just because just like an imu can measure how much your phone is moving it can measure how much a pipe is moving the other project that we talked about was we wanted to map pipelines and this would surprise you because uh, in a lot of places they don't even have a map of their pipeline they know where the pipeline starts they mm-hmm. know where it ends but they don't know where it goes i see okay so what we to do was to try to map the pipeline right so what we wanted to do was put an imu in in a let's say a ball right and then you could put the ball inside the pipeline and it comes out the other end and by measuring how much it's moving you could find out the shape of the pipeline and then you could map it so that's what we wanted to do ha that's, that's very a creative. crazy idea it did not work but that will give you an, uh, a taste of what we do when we brainstorm right 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 okay yeah, so there's actually a lot of creativity also involved in this right okay so going back to your day to day what it looks like usually what are your working hours like uh it's a fairly relaxed atmosphere i work from 9 to 6 because i like to go in a little late typically people come in at around 8 8:30 what we do is we, we try to maintain a more uh, grad school like environment because uh, we have to kind of come up with all these creative ideas to solve things so it's not as if you know you can get there and then you can work these many hours and then you can get it done because a lot of time you have to you know play around you have to try out new ideas so uh in our group we maintain a very uh, informal atmosphere uh, you can come and go as you please hours wise it's not a demanding job in the sense of you know some jobs are very demanding that you have to put in a lot of hours right right and when you described that you spend a lot of your time on brainstorming and then developing prototypes for ideas mm-hmm. that seem to have potential 
usually right. are you working with other research engineers what is the what is the team like that you're working right. with so we we work with a very diverse team so i have as i said i have chemical engineers uh, you know corrosion engineers mechanical engineers electrical engineers all of them on the team not all of them might be working on every project so in my team right now we have one civil engineer i am kind of doing software even though i have a civil engineering degree and then we have one corrosion engineer so three people working on this project most of them have phd's so i kind of feel like howard wallowitz from the big bang theory but <laughs> i don't know. Um, <laughs> okay uh, but a lot of practical work uh, comes my way so that's that's a lot of fun and it's good it's, it's a lot of fun interacting with people who are at the top of the game yeah i'm sure so what are the most interesting aspects of your job it's it's just the um, space to exercise my creativity and the space to learn i've learned so many things on this job and then on a, on a typical day i walk in and especially on the days that i'm kind of not doing very practical stuff i have space to kind of explore things you know it's just fun i'm watching videos on youtube on how people are you know flying drones because that might give me a new idea i'm watching ted talks and of course i mean I'll, you know it's not as if we goof off all the time because all of that does come together in some way bring out new ideas but you know who can watch ted talks at work and call it work <laughs> that's cool okay and are there any aspects that you find challenging hmm yes i talked about uh, working in a multidisciplinary team uh, which is exciting but at the same time it's extremely challenging and frustrating because uh, you have to constantly keep explaining yourself so again i do software so you know there might be some software problem and i can say hey i'm just going to write a multi-threaded application to solve this problem and then everybody is staring at you blankly they don't know what you're talking about right so i think that's challenging it's actually frustrating because then every time you do something you have to explain yourself no these are the benefits this is what it means and i'm sure the others in the team also feel that way because every time they come up with something new and i am not a chemical engineer so then they have to explain to me everything that's going on but then things like research like this does require uh, multidisciplinary teams and uh, these problems all have multiple aspects and you cannot solve them until you learn to communicate with the diversity yeah that makes sense especially i think the challenge is higher because you are all working in very technical roles so you have right. to be not only an expert in your own field but be able to understand the other person's field also to some extent exactly okay exactly. so is there a typical career path for someone in this role to be very honest a lot of times people come into this role as a stopgap between a master's degree and a phd okay right but a phd is not really required to move up eventually you'll have to move more towards management so you know a research engineer they would put in a few years doing this then they might become a senior research engineers where they would be managing their own projects they might have two or three projects that they manage and then each project has a team but even at that time they would be contributing something technical to it and then after that you might become in my company they call them program managers so program managers are essentially working in a particular field of research right so in dnb we have a materials research group so we are doing a lot of materials based modeling in my group mm-hmm. that's mine 
and we have an IT research group. We used to have an Arctic research group. Uh, we have a climate change and adaptation research group. So these are like broad trends in the industry that people are doing research in. So you might rise to the level of a program manager. And then after that, then it's more corporate roles where you might become the head of research or you might end up in a CTO role. I mean, which is you right. know, more, I mean, not everybody will rise to that level, but some of some of the research engineers might. Yeah, of course. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Now let's switch to figuring out what kind of things can help potential applicants who might mm-hmm. be interested in this job. In your opinion, what kind of person do you think would enjoy himself or herself in this job? Mm-hmm. Somebody who, who enjoys being uh, more creative and who enjoys a space to kind of try out new ideas. I think it's very important to be a polymath. You know, there are some people who are very focused on one particular field of expertise and they don't know a lot about other fields. But uh, for this role, it's very important to know a little bit, be a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. So that is very important. So, so you said that basically someone who is, first of all, fairly creative, so they can come up with out-of-the-box mm-hmm. ideas. Right. And uh, they should they should have an interest in a lot of different areas and be able to go deep in a wide variety of subjects right okay so the best research engineers that you've seen what do you see them do the best ones are really good at understanding the human aspects of the technology okay can you share Uh, an example a lot of people are very good at the technology itself you know there's, there's no scarcity of phds or of master's degree holders who are really good at what they do what a lot of people lack is the understanding of the human aspects. Why would somebody adopt a particular technology? Now, if you're building a new technology, why would the client use it? You know, and the answer is not always money. You know, money is an as an aspect that if you can save somebody money, they will use it. But there are other aspects. You know, what what do they fear? Do they fear liability issues? Do they are they running after new technologies but just because it's new? You know, buzzwords. In the industry, you know, people start chasing buzzwords. So right now, big data is a big buzzword. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, a lot of times that's not what you need, right? So you have to understand these motivations and then work around them. And then also create the technology in a way that is usable by human beings, right? So what we spent a lot of effort doing in our project and we had a lot of success with that, is that we have all this complicated stuff going on. But ultimately, when we present it to the client, we, we present it in a very simple, very easy to understand way that they can then adopt. And developing that sense, I mean, this is actually kudos to my project manager because he has that sense of what people want. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot from him with that. So I think that's what the best research engineers do. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm guessing that is a very critical piece to making sure that your technology actually ends up getting used by people. Right. Yeah. So if someone is interested in this role, are there any resources that they can use? Uh, what do you mean by resources? So if you think about A, how do I learn more about this okay. role? And B, okay. if I want to, let's say, prepare for this for interviews mm-hmm. and if I want to apply how do I do that? So resources could be books, resources could be websites, 
resources right. could be courses that you should take anything that comes to mind right uh, i can't think of anything in particular what one could do is really go look at websites of different corporate research groups and what they are doing for the interview i would say really go one level above so i'm assuming that if you're starting off you you are a very good engineer and you want to do a lot of engineering but it would really help if you look at softer aspects of technology like how do how are projects managed so if you can look up things on that how do you position your product how do you market it right if you can really look at those things from a technology angle i you know a lot of books are these days being written on startups and how to do business plans and all that maybe those will be helpful because when you interview for these positions what people are looking for is not just your soundness in technology but also whether you can turn this technology into a real product so that is always helpful right okay so not only be a, be an excellent engineer but then also go one level higher in understanding right. how will i take that technology to market and all that's required for it right okay okay so what's the best way to apply is it campus recruitments or can you also apply it at see on the website if someone is already working right now typically research groups are small so they don't hire in, in large numbers like a typical you know um, operational group would in any company so if you really want to get into this role you have to network a little bit more especially if you are a master's student you should go to conferences and then make contacts and then know where which kind of research is happening in which company uh, and then you know make friends and then through them you can find out when when a suitable role is available of course postings are always up on the website but as a graduate student it's important to build your network okay uh, in in the field that you're working in i see okay and then ultimately i guess you'll try and get a referral right okay All right, Vinod. I think this has been super helpful. I do want to ask you if you would have any advice for someone who is considering this role and wants to learn more. Um, I don't know. I think I have covered everything. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything more right now. No worries. Thank you so much. This was extremely helpful. I think I learned a lot of new stuff. To be honest, a lot of okay. new terms. Yeah, I know. I'm. I'm. Uh, it's it's very hard for me to summarize what I do because I I'm. quite literally doing something different every week and then i get started on one thing and then it's just uh, you know then i don't talk about the others well all right then take care bye bye okay bye bye so that was vinod khare on working as a research engineer in the oil and gas space clearly this is a fairly technical and detail oriented role someone who's interested in technology going deep into technology and applying that technology to other industries could be interested in this role as always if you have any feedback to share with us or if you have ideas on professions that we should include in our upcoming episodes please do share your ideas with us you can email us at learneducatediscover@gmail.com you can also follow us on twitter our twitter handle is @led_curator Also, we'll be sharing notes from today's episode as well as links to resources that Vinod mentioned on our blog. You can find our blog at Medium. The URL is medium.com forward slash at led underscore curator. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next episode, take care, guys. Bye.